The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyett, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and joining us for the hour, Neil Irwin, a chief economic correspondent at Axios, who's written a couple of books, which we'll get into here. But Neil, before we talk about markets and the Fed, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved in, in, in being an economic correspondent to begin with? And what got you to write the two books? Sure thing. Thanks for having me. It should be a fun conversation. So I have spent my career as a, as a newspaper writer, primarily. I started at the Washington Post. I got an MBA. I covered the Federal Reserve during the financial crisis. So I started on the Fed beat in 2007, was kind of there throughout the kind of roiling period of, of uh, those few years, obviously, as it pivoted to Europe and the Eurozone crisis. I spent a lot of time in Europe. And I wrote a book about the global financial crisis called The Alchemists. It's a narrative of how the world's central bankers, you know, Ben Bernanke, Jean-Claude Trichet, Mervyn King, uh, Mario Draghi, how they navigated the world economy through the global financial crisis. I left the post for the New York Times in 2014, helped start The Upshot, which is a vertical focused on analytical and explanatory journalism, did a lot of economic analysis for The Times, and joined Axios at the start of this year. So I'm Chief Economic Correspondent, where I write a daily, every weekday column called, our newsletter called Axios Macro. We just hit send on it two minutes ago. That's free. Uh, you can find it on axios.com and get a daily kind of lunchtime kind of quick check-in on the most important macroeconomic news from myself and my partner, Courtney Brown. So that's what I'm doing. I'm curious if, from your experience, anything has changed in the way journalists cover central bank actions. Do you, do you think that because of natural language processing and things like that, that a lot of algorithms end up sort of interpreting what the Fed does as opposed to people like you, like back in the 07, 08 period? Talk about how things might have changed over time. Yeah, look, I'm sure every, you know, macro hedge fund worth its salt is, is doing all kinds of things where they can, you know, take the, the, the text of a statement or the minutes and kind of instantly make trading strategies and decisions automatically. I think there is, and, and you know, and that technology, I'm sure, has come a long way since 15 years ago. You know, I, I think there is some value in what the Fed press corps does in terms of, you know, we're, we're, we're reading these documents closely. We're talking to the policymakers. We're, you know, really trying to, to understand what the reaction function looks like, what the, you know, what the, what the policy path ahead might be. Um, and, you know, a big part of our role is, is not to feed information to hedge funds and, you know, people who really trade on this information, but to help citizens be informed about what the government is, is doing on their behalf. And, you know, as the Fed has become a bigger and bigger part of the economy and the markets, 
you know, an $8 trillion balance sheet and, and, and you know, the, this major role they've played throughout these crises of the last 15 years, I think having that role and having, uh, and having the media really cover the Fed intensely has become a, a point of focus for all the major organizations. So I think post-GFC, a lot of investors, whenever they think about a coming crisis, they always use the great financial crisis as sort of the the benchmark. And obviously, there are a lot of things that are very different this time around compared to the 07-08 period. But I am curious your thoughts, given how long you've tracked the Fed, what your thoughts are on their ability to navigate what seems like a not an event, right, but rather a process of inflation. You can argue that the great financial crisis really was primarily the the seeds up events that happen, you know, with Lehman. But there's no real event that you can kind of point to necessarily here. So talk about how the Fed responds to periods like this and if maybe they just don't know how to deal with something this prolonged. Yeah, I mean they're you know they're in a they're in a jam. <laughs> they're in a bad spot. They're you know inflation was building going back to spring of twenty one and you know some people very publicly were we're seeing some real inflation risk, and they just didn't see it. They, they, they made the wrong call and didn't even start talking about, you know, tapering bond purchases, QE, and, and lift off on rates until basically the end of 21 when inflation was already getting up toward, you know, 6 7 8%. So they're behind the curve. They're, they're trying to figure out how to, how to get not behind the curve without completely crashing the economy. And, you know, we'll see this in this, we're having a kind of cycle right now of, oh, are they going to hike 75 basis points this month or 100, you know, they're, they're trying to turn that dial and find ways to turn that dial enough to slow the economy and not cause a, a, a recession. It's looking less and less likely they'll succeed. It looks more and more like this inflation is so high, so entrenched, so widespread, filtering through so many, you know, not just not just, you know, one-off goods, but, but all kinds of sectors that, you know, the odds that, that that can be brought down without a pretty serious contraction is looking less and less likely. And, you know, I, you, you mentioned, I don't think 08 is a particularly good parallel for this. I think this is not a financial crisis kind of situation. This is kind of some mix of like the 2001 cycle where you had the dot-com crash paired with, you know, the, the, the Volcker disinflation, maybe a less extreme version of that. So if we can kind of split the difference between those, I think that might be what we're looking at. But, but let's play with that a little bit, because I agree with you on, on, on that point about it being very different than 08. But the, the, there is perhaps a scenario that you can argue uh, whereby we could be headed towards some kind of financial crisis, because when you have so much leverage in the system, it doesn't take that many butterflies flapping their wings to create a hurricane, right? And if the response by policymakers to every crash is to relever, and you can't do that now, that seems like a, a, a nasty situation for what could be an event to still come. That comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's completely plausible, and and I, you know, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I think the question is, all right, we've had real rates come up a lot so far this year. Is there a point at which either real rates or nominal rates would hit a level? Where the, the stuff that breaks in the economy isn't just you know venture capital companies that funded companies you know have to do layoffs. It's not just crypto crash, but you know really gets to the point where you have systemically important companies, you know companies that employ large large numbers of people hit bankruptcy, and then it flows through the credit system. So you have losses in leverage loans, losses in in high yield debt that then kind of spiral out into a broader lack of credit availability for all types of businesses. And that's how this becomes not just a, you know, garden variety recession, but a, but a more severe recession. If it ha- like, I, you know, it, this is this is kind of in the realm of, as you say, it's it's the kind of mystery risk hanging out there. What kind of industry or companies could that be? 
what might trigger it, what level of rates might trigger it. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think it's not at all crazy to think of that as kind of one of the risk patterns that we have in the next couple of years. Right. And there is one parallel, I think, to to the great financial crisis, or at least the lead up to it. And it's not exactly a perfect parallel, but the, you can argue that there is a commonality in terms of housing affordability, right? And and the way home prices have gone vertical, not just in the U.S., but you look at Canada, you look at Australia, you look across the globe. Yeah, it makes sense. COVID was a global phenomenon. So this move towards bigger homes it was, was a global move. But that also results in all kinds of other dislocations because most recessions tend to be preceded by housing weakness because that's the the asset that everybody tends to have as opposed to owning stocks. Yeah, and I, you know, like I think this home prices are going to have to adjust more than they have so far. We're, we're we're in the early days of the kind of mortgage rates resetting and you know coming to, come to a higher level and and home prices. You know, you see a lot of these reports from like Redfin and stuff on, you know, the share of deals falling through, share of listings cutting prices has happened, but but we're in the early days of that. And I don't know where the equilibrium is for housing, but it's it's not it's not where we are now, where we have, you know, March 2022 prices, but we have July 22 mortgage rates, you know, it's not sustainable. I will add there, there is a, you know, so like the fundamental problems in housing to me are, are, are about supply. And you do worry that, you know, Fed tightening creates a world where, if, if that makes builders kind of have more reluctance to build, it can make the supply problems worse, even as the, the fundamental imbalance is the medium term of supply and demand. So, I, you know, I think we should all be watching housing really carefully and, and seeing where that might end up. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, and it kind of goes to the point that everything is very seemingly desynced, right? So stocks and bonds have cratered in terms of wealth lost this year, but housing, to your point, is is still very early days, is still very elevated. So you've got this huge gap between public markets and the value of homes across across the globe, right? I don't know if we've ever seen that kind of a divergence that quickly, where homes stay as elevated as they are, and stocks and bonds are what took the the, the biggest hit. Yeah, and that just has to find a different equilibrium. I mean, the, the, housing especially has these really long delays. So you think if you think about it, if I decide I want to buy a new house, I, it takes a while to you know get a realtor, get your money lined up, start going to open houses, find a place, make an offer, get it accepted, close you know six weeks after that, get your mortgage loan, and then before that transaction shows up in the home price indexes, it's like six two, six weeks, eight weeks after that. So you know it's a very slow. For, for the actual, you know, you look at these real-time measures on on transaction volume and, you know, listings, how long they've been on the market, because the, the, the more reliable kind of price data, that sort of stuff takes longer. I just think there has to be a major adjustment in housing to given where rates are, given where stocks are, you know, I think give it time. I want to do a thought experiment with you on this. I saw some something earlier on, on financial media that suggested that the number of people that think we're going to have a recession next year is like at 60 some odd percent. Like there's this overwhelming belief that we're heading for a recession, even among those that are not in the financial services industry or, or tracking this on a 
on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that back in, in 06, 07, you would have seen the same type of sentiment by the public? Where I'm going with that is, I feel like social media and this constant conversation around inflation and saying the word recession so many times, because now everybody's able to look up things so quickly and because everyone gets emotionally tied to the narrative of the moment because of short-termism, it seems to me that maybe it's not going to be as bad as everybody seems to believe it will be, because if it was that bad, they probably wouldn't see it coming. Yeah, maybe. You know, it is true that like right now, this this mismatch between a quite strong job market and negative consumer sentiment, all this kind of recession. I mean, I saw one survey that like 53% of people thought we're in a recession right now, which, you know, if you look at most of the data we look at on that, it's, it, you know, I'm doubtful that's the case. I will say, though, I remember I wrote a story in the summer of 2008. So, the recession of that cycle actually started in, in December 2007. So the recession was underway, but the really severe phase of the global financial crisis didn't start until later that year. So we were in this weird moment where, you know, the job market was kind of bumpy, unemployment was rising, the Fed was cutting rates, energy prices were really high in the, in the summer of 2008. And I pointed out then that like the, the consumer sentiment numbers were falling through the floor and were terrible. While the actual economic data wasn't so bad, it was just kind of bumping along. And that seemed like a paradox. With hindsight, I'm not sure it was a paradox. With hindsight, you know, sometimes the survey data can capture something beneath the surface of the economy that, that is important to, to pay attention to and recognize. And in that case, it was, you know, people were losing their housing wealth. People were seeing their stock portfolios fall. People were nervous about what we would now call a global financial crisis. And that was real. And and then they were unhappy about high gas prices then. And so that's where I think there are some parallels to right now. You know, as you see these consumer sentiment and other numbers that are just like in the basement, they're terrible. You know, I, I'm I'm a little reluctant to to say, oh, people are imagining it. Uh, they know their stock portfolio are down. <laughs> stock portfolios are down. They know gas is insanely expensive. They know that, yeah, the job market's good, but my raises aren't quite keeping up with inflation. Like I, I, I think it's a mistake to dismiss those surveys just because people are going more on guts than than kind of a careful analysis of the of conditions. I do also wonder, though, and, and uh, you know, obviously you have to go a little bit deeper to see the political affiliations of those that are responding to those kind of polls. But I do wonder if there's an element of negativity just because there's a broad dissatisfaction with Biden, the Democrats. And I don't mean to get into political discussion, but you know there are these these polls that make it seem like the the country's overwhelmingly bullish or bearish or positive or negative. And when you probably dig down into who's actually voting, it, it might be the, the other party than what's in power that's saying that. I mean, I'd go a step further even than that, which is that some of this negative economic sentiment might be tied up in the same, just, you know, the sense that just everything is awful. You know, like, you know, maybe it's the same reason more people are punching flight attendants on planes and, and there's a mental health crisis in the schools. And, you know, this pandemic has really done a number on, on lots and lots of people. And uh, yeah, you can look at, at the, you know, job numbers and, and wage numbers, things like that, and say they look pretty decent. But, you know, if you've been through this, this horrible last couple of years and it just feels like things aren't getting better, it's hard to, when somebody calls you up to ask you survey questions for an economic survey, it's hard to disentangle, you know, economic stuff from from just the general bad vibes. Yeah, no, which makes total sense. Okay, now I, I had changed the name of the space to the Fed put the world on fire as a little bit of a play on words, not just because of your book, A World on Fire, but because of the Fed put, which yeah. you can argue is what kind of led to all this excessive leverage, all this money and all this activity, which 
now the Fed seems to recognize in their statement that they don't really fully understand inflation. Maybe this is sort of the the end result of of all their activities over the last years manifesting finally in the real economy beyond supply chain disruptions. I, I want to hear your thoughts on how, again, putting sort of your your journalist research hat on, and given that you've written uh, you know books on the Fed, how much of this is the Fed's own doing over time? Right, it's very easy for everybody to blame the Fed for what's happened. The Fed never seems to want to blame itself, but how much do you think is driven <laughs> by their own their own policies? So I'm I'm I I think that if you go back to before the pandemic, if you go back to 2019, their framework and their approach, you know, was was working reasonably well, right? Like they they had been able to raise rates. The QE was done. They were doing QT and shrinking the balance sheet. You know, we can debate their framework and whether they were, you know, put in place a new framework that was too tolerant of inflation or, or whatever, but. You know, I'm not. I'm not of this school that like the the Fed puts and the, and the willingness to cut rates when when there's kind of shakiness in the markets and the economy is was inherently always going to lead us to this place and lead us to this you know very damaging moment in in markets and the economy. I think the you know the, I think the, the big mistakes and and I would also have, and when the pandemic happened in the spring of 2020, you know the, the idea that you have to pull out all the stops to keep the economy from collapsing and the financial system from breaking down. I mean, people have kind of forgotten how severe the financial strains were in March of 2020 and how easily that could have become something like a global financial crisis. I think the mistake was not realizing sooner that, <laughs> that, that, that their role was, was done, that they had done their job, they had flooded the system with liquidity, fiscal authorities had stepped up and were spending trillions and trillions of dollars, and that the, you know, the era of needing to have you know, ongoing QE, balance sheet expansion, and zero rates, and forward guidance was was over much sooner than they realized it, and you know I, I, I think this would still be a bumpy road now if, if if they had done that correctly. But but it would not, you know, we probably wouldn't be in this world of nine percent inflation and and this kind of you know. If, imagine if some of the run up in stocks and other risk assets in the course of twenty twenty one hadn't happened, right? We'd actually be in a better place if they had started tightening sooner and prevented some of the financial excesses of the last eighteen months from ever really taking root. But they didn't do that. And, and I wonder how much of that was because of the Fed falling for its own narrative and the emotion that was still being out there that this would be a prolonged, you know, pandemic, right? That it would that that this was going to last longer in terms of the effect on society. I, I, I I'm I'm always fascinated by by groupthink, right? In terms of how organizations work, and the Fed's obviously got you know very bright people and PhDs, but in your own analysis and looking at the Fed. I'm going to assume that they're probably just as susceptible to groupthink as any other organization. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and it is a, like, as you say, a lot of smart people. I respect a ton of people over there, and, and they're very earnest, you know, public servants and, and trying to do their, you know, make their best judgments. At the same time, it is a can be this incestuous world where you know everybody kind of has their own, you know, the, the models that they all use are, are very similar, and and they're very similar to what like bank economists use, right? So people will work as a researcher at the Fed and then go become the you know, uh, an economist at J.P. Morgan or whatever. So, you know, there's almost this refractive thing where the, the forecasting community and the Fed insiders are all using the same models, the same kind of mindset, the same sensibility, and, and that can create blind spots, no question. Let's talk about the uh, the Alchemist book for a moment here, because you had done a, you know, a deep dive in terms of trying to see what the interactions were between Bernanke and, and Mervyn King, right, and, and Jean-Claude Trichet. Talk about what you learned in writing that book that maybe most people are not aware of when it comes to central banks interacting with each other on a global scale 
And then let's let's tie that into what may be happening behind the scenes today. Yeah. So I mean, I think the so you know so Basel is the city in Switzerland, right on the French and German border. It's where the Bank for International Settlements is located. It's kind of the central bank of the central banks. They have a big building that looks like a looks like a, a beer can in the middle of right next to the train station in Basel. And the it's really the forum where the global central bankers convene with some regularity. I think it's every couple of months all of the major central banks send their governor or deputy governor to meet and have you know they they, they talk about their different economic situations and challenges and global kind of economic difficulties and kind of formal sessions. They have these grand dinners with with you know luxurious food up at the I think I believe it's on the top floor of the of the building. Um, and and in these sessions in these weekends that happen you know many times a year there really is a kind of sense of, of companionship of, of trust that tends to develop among these global central bankers i mean you can look at it in a more conspiratorial way as you know look at these you know guys who are who are clueless sitting around eating uh, fancy food in switzerland while their economies burn and you know i, I understand why people can view it that way you know but i think it does in moments of crisis pays off in the sense that there is a sense of, of mutual trust. And so we've seen this, for example, you know, the Fed has done these swap lines. When, when global money markets have frozen up, both in the pandemic and during the Eurozone crisis and during the global financial crisis, the Fed made swap lines to make dollar liquidity available across the world. And they were willing to do that because they had this deep reservoir of kind of trust with the other central banks. And, you know, that made the, that, that, that helped prevent a global recession, global crisis in, in you know, repeatedly throughout this last 15 years. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, one thing I, the, the, the Fed and the ECB have a lot of shared DNA in the sense that, you know, their, their frameworks, their models are are not so different for better or worse, right? Like I, I'm, I'm being a little agnostic on that, right? You could say that they're making the same mistakes and having the same blind spots, but, you know, that there is some real open communication and, and trust there. And I would expect that that's playing out now. You know, I, I expect that, that Jay Powell and, and Christine Lagarde and Andrew Bailey, Bank of England, are are talking regularly and kind of understanding the how these challenges look from from different corners of the world. Yeah, and that 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 gets into conversation around the dollar and and the euro, right, hitting parity or even below it. Because if if the idea of having an expanding dollar swap lines is to increase dollar liquidity, well, the dollar has been rising in a way that would suggest there basically is no liquidity, and yet we're not hearing. Maybe that's not to say that it's not happening on the back end, but we're not hearing of kind of these behind-the-scenes, you know, swap lines being opened up. I remember back in November of 2011, yeah, you know, as the Eurozone crisis was still you know, unfolding, there was that kind of shock move where I think you know, six central banks the day before Thanksgiving basically announced yeah. some kind of shock and awe as far as dollar swap lines being opened, and that, that kind of stopped the waterfall decline that was resuming in the stock market back then. But, but let, let's talk about the dollar swap lines in the context of currency movement today, and maybe for the audience, explain the relevance of dollar swap lines. So, you know, so one... The dollar is a global reserve currency, so there's you know trade in dollars and financial activity in dollars everywhere on Earth. You know the problem, of course, is if you're in if you're in Germany, if you're in Japan, and and you have a need for dollars because you know you you know your your bank doesn't have dollars, right? You're a you're a bank in somewhere outside the U.S. You know you have access to liquidity from your domestic central bank in whatever currency that is, and in a moment, and normally, you know, dollar swaps or between private entities, you know, flow like water, and there's no issue. There's plenty of dollars floating around the world. In a crisis, banks want to hoard their dollars. They, their, you know, counterparty risk seems too scary. They don't want to, you know, part with their their dollars. 
And so that can be a problem. And so the, the, the solution that came up with during the global financial crisis, it wasn't totally new. I believe they, they experimented something along these lines around 9-11, is to essentially the Fed you know, does a swap with the ECB for X billion dollars. The ECB then you know, pledges euros and then you know, it's 90 days, whatever time span. And then the ECB can make those dollars available to their banks within the eurozone, who then can lend to their customers and, and you know, keep, uh, keep from having a having a kind of spiraling crisis. And then, you know, after the 90 days, it unwinds and Fed it feels like they're secure, the, everybody's happy. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just an aspect, it's an aspect of the U.S. dollar supremacy kind of role as global reserve currency that doesn't get a lot of attention, but is a kind of interesting way the world works. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And do you think that that the ECB wants the euro to be this weak relative to the U.S.? Because you know, when you're faced with deflation, you want a weaker currency. But they've got worse inflation than than we do in the states. Yeah, they're in a real jam. You know, they so you know the problem is their energy inflation is worse than here. But meanwhile, their kind of economic situation, labor markets are are weaker. So, you know, they have been slower to raise rates. You know, they're, in fact, they haven't raised rates yet. They're doing, they kind of have a plan to to move forward, but but have not pulled the trigger. You know, we're about to be, you know, we'll be after this next meeting, pushing up closer to 3% on U.S. short-term rates while they're still zero or below zero. So, look, the currency movements are, are Kind of an artifact of that. There's no, it's no mystery. That's how currency markets work. I think the question is how much of that can can the Europeans bear? Because you know the the weak euro is feeding into their domestic inflation, and you know you think inflation is high in the U.S. as it is. Imagine if dollar strengthening wasn't happening. You know, I, I'm I'm not sure where Lagarde and the ECB what their comfort level is with the current moves we've seen so far. I think that's a real thing to watch, and whether it gets to a point where they Feel like they just have to tighten more aggressively, even into the into the teeth of a of a really difficult economic situation. How do you think that might, um, when it comes to Europe, might filter through to some societal unrest? Uh, unrest. So, one of the one of the things that was happening on May 6, twenty ten, which was the flash crash back then, was you had some very serious riots and protests in Greece, and you've seen in the emerging economies, you know, these these uprisings, these frustrations around the government because prices are so elevated. We know. That wheat prices, for example, are one of the main catalysts for the Arab Spring. But I don't see too many people talking about the risk of societal unrest when it comes to Europe, given the way the euro itself has behaved. Talk about how you think about that as a potential crisis, right? Because nobody seems to be of the mindset that "quote unquote" civilized Europeans are going to start, uh, you know, bringing their pitchforks out. Well, wait till wait till you know nobody has heating oil and, and natural gas. This right, winter, exactly. Uh, right. When, it, when it gets cold, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think the the, the risk of, of major unrest in countries where you don't normally see that in the next year or so is is substantial. You know, I, I think there is a difficult question of if you're a central banker, what what are you supposed to do, right? So, for example, the Fed is sees a nine percent inflation print, and they're like, this is terrible. We have to raise rates aggressively to to, to bring inflation down. 
But when you do that, you're actually tightening global financial conditions, again, because of the dollar's kind of primacy in, in world finance, world trade. And so you're essentially tightening credit across the entire world economy. So you're making things worse in a lot of emerging markets in terms of you know, uh, credit conditions and financial conditions. At the same time, you, know, you have these emerging markets who are, and developed markets where you know, grain prices are through the roof, oil prices are through the roof, where you know, there, there are literal shortages of, of food. And that's, you know, the Fed and the ECB can't, you know, can't bring peace to Ukraine, can't make that situation calm down. They, they have to kind of set monetary policy based on what they think will achieve their goals of stable prices and maximum employment and all that. And, uh, you know, ultimately when you have a negative global supply shock, there's just not a good answer for that. It's, you know, choosing among, among bad answers. I reset the room for minutes here for the remaining half an hour. First of all, make sure you follow Neil and Check out his books on Amazon, which, again, we're going to talk a little bit more about here. Again, joining for the remaining 30 minutes, Neil Irwin, Chief Economic Correspondent at Axios, author of The Alchemist, and How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. So let's actually kind of go with that book title for a bit, because I would argue that one of the reasons that we have this high inflation is that everything became winner-take-all. You end up having industries really being defined by just two or three mega players, and I've made this point many times that the real way to, to, to solve inflation isn't with hiking rates, it's really with competition. But it's hard to do that when you're in a world where technology results in the biggest getting bigger and everybody else having to you know, barely survive, right? Talk about the, the dynamics of this kind of winner-take-all dynamic that we're in as a society and what were the, some of the things that you, you, you kind of referenced in that book? Yeah, so the, the book itself was kind of a career advice book for, for navigating this world. But I think there are some real macroeconomic implications of the kind of winner-take-all effects in the economy. So many industries are, as you say, two or three players. And, you know, in fact, the entire Jackson Hole Conference Kansas City Fed puts on, and I believe it was 2018, was, was focused on this set of issues because they really do have macroeconomic consequences. You know, think about it in, in kind of asset management, right? The fact that BlackRock and Vanguard and a couple others are, are account for such a huge proportion of asset management. Think about tech where, you know, there's the thing, there's, you know, four companies that seemingly control every aspect of our of our technological lives. You know, so I mean, the book was about like how you kind of navigate finding a job and a career path in those types of companies. But, but I think that the, the implication for the overall economy is, you know, we're seeing the downsides of kind of supply constraints in which a more competitive market might need more supply. And, you know, you, you've heard some of this out of the White House, things like, you know, poultry processing and, and you know, farmers can, can raise all the chickens they want, but there's only two or three companies that process those chickens and get them to grocery stores. And so they have market power. You know, arguably we're seeing with refiners right now where that's a bottleneck and, and, and part of the reason oil or gasoline is so expensive. You know, I think you can go through industry by industry and there's a sense that CapEx is lower and, you know, competition is lower than then would be optimal if you want to see kind of long-term growth. I feel like industry after industry, we're seeing, you know, the, the problem is really capacity bottlenecks, housing, right? So there's not enough makers of windows. So home builders can't get enough windows or can't get enough drywall to, to, to put up houses at the pace they would like. And, you know, I think it's a, it really raises huge questions about the structure of the economy and at what point the things that make sense about winner-take-all effects, right? When there's software, when there's, you know, kind of economies of scale that come from information economics and, you know, what point does do the benefits of that get outweighed by the costs of not having more vibrant competitive marketplaces for a, a wide range of goods and services? Right. And that's why there's this, this kind of strange dynamic. I spoke about this with Michael Green over the weekend that 
you can make an argument that the Fed should keep rates low, if anything, just to try to encourage some kind of competition, because the more you raise rates, the less you're going to have entrepreneurs coming out to borrow capital to try to build a business and to, you know, whether it's for mining, extraction, whatever it be, the higher rates are, the, the harder it is for, for new entrants to enter, right? Which is, so there's this kind of strange dynamic where the cost of capital being used to fight inflation may actually not, maybe a short-term solution, but then you kind of go back to longer-term inflation because you haven't solved the competition problem. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, I think I think there's been a lot more interesting kind of discussion and analysis. It's like there's a group called Employ America that has done some really interesting research on on supply problems in the economy. And you know, I, I think there's a recognition that there are downsides to using the Fed as our main inflation fighters. And you know, they're raising rates quickly. They're trying to crush demand and bring demand in line with supply. But a side effect of that is it's going to hurt the supply side of the economy. I mentioned home builders earlier, you know, oil drillers, right? So if, if, the, if high yield debt rates are skyrocketing, if capital is flowing less freely, that's not going to encourage oil drillers to go out and, 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 and start pumping, right? Uh, if you think about any kind of industry looking at higher rates might say, well, now's not the time to do CapEx. Now's not the time to build capacity. I think we're heading into a recession. And if they do that collectively, you know, in terms of the economy as a whole, then we just end up at a lower equilibrium GDP and employment and everything else a couple of years down the road. You know, th- that said, nobody else in Washington, I live in Washington, nobody else in Washington seems to have any great ideas of, of how to address inflation, right? It's not like Congress is talking about raising taxes to try and reduce demand in the economy and, and get a better equilibrium, uh, you know, lower inflation. So the Fed is kind of the only game in town on fighting inflation even though their policy tools have some real downsides that could leave us in a worse place in two or three years. Okay, well, hold on. Let's go with that because that, that brings with this sort of discussion around the, the political response to this inflation because, yeah, to your point, you're not seeing anybody talk about raising taxes. And that's that's debatable as to whether raising taxes would, would break inflation because you're going to take it away from the very wealthy who are not the big driver from a demand perspective, right? So, right, you can, Or if you cut spending, you know, I mean, just anything. Right, right, uh, right. right. You're not talking about really cutting spending either. Like there's – Whatever your politics, nobody's really putting forward fiscal proposals that would have an obvious kind of disinflationary impact. Right, but right, but one thing we know for sure is that the Republicans will blame it on Democrat spending as opposed to taking blame themselves for the trillions that that uh, you know Trump put into the system too. Right, in terms of leveraging, but 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 let's let's talk about that because it, it's. I had put a poll out uh, maybe a month and a half, two months ago, where I said who's to blame most for inflation, and it, the two choices were Biden or Powell. And the overwhelming majority said Biden, which was actually really fascinating to me. I don't think that's a tell on my audience. I think it's just sort of an interesting dynamic because most people don't understand the role of the Fed, you know, uh, outside of our industry. But what is is there really anything that 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 the Biden administration can do? I mean, everyone's looking to to the president for some kind of leadership here, but it's not clear that, to your point, they can really do anything anyway. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's. It's funny. When I talk to people at the White House and, and the administration, they they really do. And, and Biden had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal just a few weeks ago, basically putting the Fed front and center, saying the best thing we can do is let the Fed do its job, keep them independent, not try and jawbone them or, or put pressure on them. And they stuck to that, right? They haven't. You haven't heard a peep of criticism out of the Biden team about the Fed raising rates, even though they might be about to cause a recession. So, you know, that's, that's respectable, but, but that's not the same as, as coming up with a solution. That's saying it's these other guys' problem. And, and you know, the and it is true, like, fiscal tools are not really well suited for this. I, I, I You know, to their credit, they have done some things around, like, 
uh, bottlenecks at ports and trying to you know convene groups to to work through you know different problems at the ports in various very specific industries. But you know, and, and they and they will say that they're some version of their building back better plan, whatever form that would end up taking, uh, is disinflationary because it helps things on the supply side of the economy and, and reduces the deficit. So that's kind of their case. Uh, I think the reality is. You know, elected officials, you know, if, if what needs to happen to bring inflation down is you need to crush demand. There needs to be less demand in the economy. No politician wants to do the things that would make that happen. No politician wants to raise payroll taxes or cuts, you know, social welfare spending in an election year. And so, you know, that's that's why we end up with a situation where the Fed is the only game in town on this. I will contrast that with the with the 70s. You know, Arthur Burns, you know, as inflation was kind of getting out of control, the chairman of the Fed was Arthur Burns. And he essentially blamed everybody else. You know, he, he blamed things that were real, you know, oil shocks out of the Middle East and, you know, union kind of wage demands and things like that, and didn't take ownership the way Jay Powell is and, and say, we're going to do what it takes to, to bring this inflation down. So that is a difference between now and then, but the cost might be a pretty nasty recession. Right. And to your point, it's, uh, austerity is a, is a disinflationary force, right? So to your point about kind of spending that that would, you can argue, work, but exactly to your point, especially in an election year, nobody ever wants to take take spending out. If anything, they want to get voted in by promising more. I mean, it's mind-numbing to me that you've got these proposals for you know, gas relief with with gift card equivalents, right, to, to help the lower and middle class, when in reality, that, that's the exact opposite of what you want. It actually keeps demand elevated by, by subsidizing higher prices with you know, future liabilities. Yeah, no, it, I mean, this is uh, California is the biggest one, but some other states are doing them as well. And look, I understand the impulse, right? People, working class people are hurting. Their prices are rising faster than their incomes. The, the things that are getting expensive most quickly are necessities. It's gasoline, it's food. So I understand the impulse to, to help people out and give them some cash to get, to get through that. But in aggregate, <laughs> you know, if the problem is constricted supply and excess demand, Throwing more money into the system is going to make that problem worse, not better. If, you know, one state can do it without being too big a deal. But if, you know, if 10 states, 20 states are doing it, suddenly it, it just makes the, the Fed's job harder. It makes the, the inflation pressures worse. Right. And they'll keep on scapegoating the Fed as being late while they're maybe slowing them down. Yeah. And, you know, and they and they and they are late. But but, you know, the, the less the, the more help they get from fiscal policy, from supply chain policy, from things like that, the, the less, you know, less they have to crank the dial. And, you know, we're already in a place where, where we might be in for a really rough year or two. And the less they have to crank that dial, the, the less rough this next year or two is going to be. All right. So you mentioned you're in Washington. You, you talked to a lot of politicians. Behind the scenes, are, is there a lot of sort of strategizing by Democrats around the message for the midterms? Because I think everyone seems to be of the of the belief that uh, Republicans will win because inflation uh, will rightly or wrongly be blamed on on whoever's in power, right? As that inflation is taking place, again, forgetting the nuance that this this is a much bigger conversation. But are there what's happening kind of in Washington as far as thoughts around how to how to counter the narratives around inflation? Aside from this idea of you know let the Fed do what it does, presumably that's still going to be a big issue for voters. I mean, look, you hear a lot out of out of the Biden people emphasizing that. Gas prices are coming down now. They have receded a good bit over the last month that, you know, the, the June inflation number that just came out it was kind of peak gas prices and, and things have been drifting down since then. If, you know, if, if they would love for that trend to continue and, and 
to take just some of the pressure off of people's, you know, I, I think gas prices especially just really weigh on people's moods. You know, you have to fill up your car every however often you drive by a, a gas station with a big sign, you know, I, you know, and I, it's a, it really is a, is a crusher for, for people's sentiment and, and feeling about things. Um, I, you know, politically, so I, you know, I mostly talk to kind of the wonks and the policy people and, uh, you know, and, and the administration in Capitol Hill, but I, I get some sense of the, political dimensions of things. And look, the Democrats know that this is a rough environment for them. It, it, it's always, you know, two years, if you remember any of the last ex-presidents, that's, you know, a tough cycle for the incumbent administration. They, you know, they know the kind of winds are against them. You know, it's hard to imagine Democrats keeping the House of Representatives, just, you know, it's such a narrow margin. And, you know, it's uh, the sentiment is so bad uh, that Republicans will almost certainly control the House. The Senate's a little more interesting. You know, the, the Democrats do have a path to keeping the Senate. You know, the, the, they have pretty good camp. You know, so like Warnock, Senator Warnock from Georgia, seems to be up in the polls against Herschel Walker in a, in a purple state. So the Senate, just because of the, you know, the, the kind of details of who's running and who the candidates are in each race, Democrats do have a pathway to keep the Senate. But it's not a good political environment for Democrats, and I don't think anybody really denies that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's one hundred percent correct. Okay, so let let's go a little bit in, back to the Fed and kind of the internal discussions that we are not privy to. Because I, you know, I'm going to make the assumption that internally within the Fed, when inflation is this high and the pressure is so high, individual Fed analyst governors they're going to start to maybe be a little bit more careful with aligning themselves with Powell, right? Because they also don't want to get the blame and. In the event that Powell can't control this, you know, there's going to be a vacancy <laughs> at some point, presumably, that that they can kind of vie for his his position. How do you think about unity within the Federal Reserve here? Do you think that everyone agrees that rates have to rise, but presumably it's now a question of one person maybe thinking 100 basis points versus 50 versus 200? Talk about some of that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. The, you know, there's always fault lines. And if anything, I would say that the the final votes end up not exposing the the degree of the actual fault lines in that room. I think there is kind of a, you know, to dissent is considered kind of a big deal. And you don't, you know, if you think they should, you know, it's the last meeting, they did 75 basis points. If you really thought that should have been 50 or thought that should have been 100, but, you know, not with a strong degree of confidence, you weren't going to dissent. You thought they were in the right ballpark and, and would probably go along with it. So, and different, you know, so reserve bank presidents are more likely to dissent than governors. Governors... I don't believe a governor has dissented since like 2005 or something. I guarantee you it's not because every governor has exactly agreed with every policy choice they've made. It's that there's kind of a sense of institutional unity. I think it's an interesting point you, you raised that as things get more difficult and more hairy, might that crack up? You know, I think of the, of the governors right now. Uh, so Chris Waller just gave a speech this morning. He's been a little to the hawkish side of Jay Powell. You know, he's been a, he's, he's emerged as a really interesting, influential voice. You know, could he be a candidate to be, uh, you know, Fed chair under the next Republican president? You know, plausibly, he's a Trump appointee. Absolutely plausible, you know. And <laughs> does that type of thing weigh on people's minds? You know, who, who knows what goes on in anybody's mind? You know, and governors, there's, and then there's the new Biden appointees on the board of governors. So Lisa Koch just started, Phil Jefferson just started. Neither of them has given a speech yet. Uh, we, you know, we can kind of guess where they're economic thinking is from their confirmation hearings and their writings, but they have not got, gone out there yet to like really stake out a claim. You know, might Lisa Cook emerge on the dovish side of this debate, you know, plausibly, or maybe she'll stick with the more traditional thing of being a team player and, and keeping any disagreements within the house. Uh, and then there's the reserve banks that are, that are, you know, more all over the place and, and, you know, less kind of under the 
feeling of, of, of being on the team in Washington. So you can get a more variety of opinions. So Esther George is very interesting. So she's the outgoing president of the Kansas City Fed, normally a hawk. She's, she's dissented in a hawkish direction many times over the years. And this time she dissented in a dovish direction because she thought that doing this kind of surprise 75 basis point rate increase could be too disruptive to markets. So, you know, I, I think there is an interesting, we talked about groupthink earlier, um, you know, there's a risk of that going on, but I, I think the, this, this, you know, we might see more fissures as as this kind of sense of inflation crisis persists. Right, because I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's always, you know, there's always a degree of ambition with anybody that's in any institution, right? So, yeah, there's group think when things are okay, but the more that things get extreme, the public and the constituents within the Fed will, you know, want to point to one single person and then disassociate with that person's views. Right. And I think that's sort of where it might get interesting in terms of the internal dynamics of the Fed. Yeah. I mean, I will say, look, Jay Powell is a very effective, you know, there's, there's a reason he had a career on Wall Street and in private equity and, you know, has has had a long career of business success. And the reason he got appointed to this job in the first place, he is, you know, good at leading a policy process, at kind of trying to keep people on sides, listening to people. You know, I think he, I, I believe before every, FOMC meeting, he's on the phone with every member of that committee to know where people's concerns are, to try and nudge them his preferred direction, to, to make sure he doesn't get too far away from the center of the committee in terms of its views. You know, he's a very savvy kind of executive type in, in that respect. But that said, this is if we keep seeing inflation numbers like we did yesterday, he is not going to be remembered as a, as a successful Fed chairman. You know, if he can stick the landing, that'll be different. If we can, if he can bring inflation down and the economic damage isn't too bad. Than his his will be viewed in history differently than if, than if this really goes off the rails. Okay, so that's actually an interesting point because no one wants to have their legacy ruined, obviously, right? So I'm sure Powell feels tremendous stress and pressure, but he doesn't quite know how to, to your point, kind of stick the landing. Now, there was, I put this tweet out a month and a half, two months ago. Bernanke, I think it was February or March of 09, was on 60 Minutes and was asked the question, Along the lines of, you know, how, how confident are you that you can control this in the event that inflation, you know, really kind of skyrockets, you know, as as the Fed was embarking on all of their stimulus back then, post Lehman, and he expressed 100% confidence, and he said, you know, the Fed can raise interest rates in 15 minutes if it has to, basically to to quell inflation. And I've used that as sort of a a point to say that why is it that the Fed is not just ripping the Band-Aid off and doing a 300, 400 basis point move and just shot the system to save the system, so to speak. Why Why is it that you think that the Fed is, is being seemingly so slow? They themselves agree they're behind. So why is the reaction still seemingly not enough? I think what they would say, this was Esther George kind of covered this in her speech the other day on, on why she dissented. You know, I think there's a view that by signaling their policy path, they they can get the kind of financial conditions impact almost immediately, right? So we we saw the run up in in you know pick your indicator corporate yields, mortgage rates, uh, treasury yields, like any any measure you want to use of kind of kind of credit availability and cre- price of credit really started jumping up as soon as they started their their hawkish pivot back in November December of twenty one, and that that's you know even though they even at the point in March when they did their first rate increase, ten-year yields, for example, had already moved up a lot, and they're continuing to move up. So, so they would say, look, we by signaling our future path of action, we are achieving what we're trying to achieve in terms of financial conditions. And if you did three hundred or four hundred basis points at one time, that that would be such a shock to the system that you create greater risk of just getting a crisis, getting kind of the scenario we we discussed at the beginning of this, which is, you know, you really cause. 
bankruptcies, freeze up of, of credit availability, you know, the kind of things that, that are not the constructive kind of demand destruction, but, but actually a kind of crisis situation in a lot of sectors of, of the financial system. And that, you know, if you, if you do the actual, if you signal what direction you're going, but then carry it out in a kind of gradual way, you maintain some optionality and lower the risk that you either break a lot of stuff that you don't intend to break and lower the risk that you are and keep the optionality to adjust that path as you go and try and calibrate it more precisely rather than just say, all right, we got to get rates higher. Let's do 300 basis points tomorrow. So I think that's, that's the, that's the view there. There's always this question, as you suggest of, okay, at what point do you, uh, is shocking the system actually desirable and something you want to do? And I think that's been kind of the open question. And, and right now it's a live question of, do you do a hundred basis points in two weeks? And, you know, <laughs> To, to, to be seen, I guess. Yeah, and I, I guess my, my point in that, and I agree with what you're saying, my point, though, in that is that in order to get back to some kind of long-run average for inflation, let's call it 3%, if you want to call that mean reversion from where we are, you have to ultimately go past the mean for mean reversion to take place, right? Which means that you probably have to have almost like a period of outright deflation. And you can only really have that if you have defaults, if you have some kind of a crisis to put such an abrupt stop and, and yes, have bankruptcies and have that pain to bring things back in line to the long run average. I, I think if you don't do that, you risk you risk an even bigger problem, which is that the mean is a lot higher. And that will be very problematic long term when incomes are not keeping up. I mean, it's, I think there's that's not a crazy view. That's that's certainly a reasonable way of thinking of kind of how the moving pieces fit together. I think it's not the Fed view. I think their view is it is possible, maybe not likely, but it is possible to have the economy cool down, have demand cool down in a non-recessionary, non-crisis situation. I mean, Powell used this phrase, you know, we still think we can achieve a soft or maybe softish landing. That was not the June meeting. That was the previous one, I believe. And, you know, I think the softish means, yeah, there'll be some bumps. There'll be some, you know, some things that that, that aren't great for people. But this doesn't have to be a, an all-out recession and certainly not a deep recession to to achieve that kind of moderating in demand. You, you might be right. <laughs> you know, they might be wrong and naive about what it takes to really get uh, keep inflation from becoming entrenched once it's been as high as it is, uh, as it is lately. It is interesting as you, as you say that, because I, I don't recall other Fed chairs expressing a degree of wishy-washiness or a degree of doubt in their rhetoric and their narrative, right? So you mentioned soft-ish. That doesn't sound very confident, right, from Powell. And then when Powell said, you know, we're only now just starting to understand how little we understand about inflation, that almost seems like a mea culpa that, that they're not that confident about how they can handle this. And I don't recall in, in the in the 08 crisis, Bernanke having words like that or narrative like that. Yeah, I mean, part of that might be a personal style thing. I mean, I think Powell yeah. really is a, he's a very conversational speaker. He's not a PhD economist. He's not, you know, the downside of that is, you know, you can, like I thought the comment on, we were learning how much we don't know about inflation is the kind of thing that like economists might say to each other, but you don't normally expect the chairman of the most powerful central bank in the world to say it on the record. In front right, of it's not very confidence-inducing, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. But I think it might be partly his kind of personal style of communicating. Yeah, I just wonder if that ends up being misinterpreted by by the marketplace. You know, people need investors need the illusion of certainty. Right, they need to have some kind of sense that the future will play out the way that it's being presented to them by those that can shape the future, which are the policymakers. And it just seems to me that, yeah, that may be his conversational style, but that may end up having very unintended consequences in terms of the confidence of money in this kind of environment. Yeah. So there's this broader kind of process that's happened over the last, you know, 
century, really, but certainly accelerated over the last 20 years of central bankers going from being these mysterious kind of men behind the curtain, all powerful, all knowing. I mean, there's this famous line that, you know, the, the governor of the Bank of England can can, you know, raise his eyebrow to, to tell a bank not to do something, that they don't have to speak at all. And and as banks, central banks have become more transparent, they now announce their policy moves. They give all these speeches, all these interviews. You know, they're out there a lot. And, you know, Powell, like the first time Bernanke didn't even do a press conference until I think it was 2010 or 2011. Before that, there were no press conferences. Now there's 80 year on top of hearings interviews, speeches, everything else. And look, I'm a reporter. I like transparency. I think it's great that we can, uh, you know, someone in my job can understand what they're thinking, what they're doing, but there maybe is something lost. And there maybe was something to be said for this, you know, we're, we're, you know, Alan Greenspan was famously kind of taciturn and, and, and mumbled and didn't really, you know, speak very clearly. Well, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, and I'm, I, I, to your point, I think something may have been lost in the transition to this new, more transparent era. Yeah, and I, and I often have talked about this before. I do wonder if that transparency ends up having maybe unintended consequences due to reflexivity and, and the idea that they, they provide a narrative to give the market some sense of confidence. And then if it turns out that the future they're talking about doesn't happen, now the, the market totally ignores any kind of future guidance, for guidance that the Fed does. I think I do think there is something to monetary policy, which is valid in terms of not being so transparent, just to surprise the market sometimes with with uh, monetary action. Yeah, I mean, to your point, that's exactly what happened uh, a month ago, right? They they had said they had said for for weeks and weeks, all right, fifty basis points, fifty basis points, and then one bad CPI number comes out, and a Michigan sentiment number, and you know, New York Fed's survey of consumer expectations, a couple of like CPI plus a couple of kind of ticky tack indicators, and you know, suddenly they're 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 walking back the thing that they had telegraphed for months. You know, is that is that confidence instilling? You know, probably not. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, so listen, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Neil Irwin. Neil, for those that want to take a look at some of your writings and, and your books, obviously on Amazon for the books, but any suggestions for people tracking your reports? Yeah, please subscribe to our uh, newsletter, Axios Macro, A-X-I-O-S.com. Macro is the newsletter comes out every weekday at noon from myself and Courtney Brown. It's a kind of short, quick read on all of these topics on kind of what you need to know to, to understand how the economy and monetary policy are evolving. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you, uh, Neil. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.